The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Grace Blakely. We're going to be talking about the financialisation of the UK economy, the declining consent for the Thatcherite settlement of the 1980s and also the prospects for rebalancing the economy away from finance towards productive investment. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you like the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Um, The podcast now also has its own Patreon page. So if you enjoy the show, please do consider donating. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Grace Blakely is a researcher at the Institute of Public Policy Research, and she's currently working on the IPPR's Commission on Economic Justice. She recently authored a report entitled On Borrowed Time, Finance and the UK's Current Account Deficit. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Grace Blakely. So, Grace, you recently authored a report for the Institute for Public Policy Research, which looked at the consequences of the financialization of the UK economy and, and the dominance of the city. And you propose a, a rebalancing of the UK away from finance towards so-called productive investment. Um, before we go into the details of the report, could you just say something about the history of the financialization of the UK and world economy? Why the post-war Bretton Woods regime broke down uh, and also why successive British governments from the late 70s onwards allowed British industry to, uh, to languish in favour of finance? Sure. Um, So there are a couple of different positions on, uh, I suppose, the history of financialisation in the UK. Uh, But as you said, you're right to to, um, locate the the beginning of it with the breakdown of uh, the Bretton Woods settlement um, and uh, the movement away from the gold standard. And I mean, essentially, the liberalisation of um, capital flows, which involved the the dismantling of uh, restrictions on capital mobility. So that's mainly the the ability of of financial capital. So money uh, and other financial assets like equities and bonds and and related derivatives to move all around the world. Um, So prior to that, during the the Bretton Woods era, um, there was the ability of capital to move around was much more restricted uh, due to the the necessities associated with the particular monetary settlement, which was based on gold and and the dominance of the US uh, and its ability to kind of exchange dollars for gold. So when that broke down, we moved towards a system in which capital was essentially free to flow uh, from wherever it wanted to wherever it wanted. Um, and the best book I've I've kind of read on this is uh, Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin's The Making of Global Capitalism, which looks at how the dismantling of capital controls was a, they look at it as a US imperial project, but there's been some interesting research recently that actually says it was very much compl- complemented by um the supporting but but subaltern role of, of the UK and particularly the city of London. So a kind of Anglo-American um, project to, to financialise the global economy. Um, and 
that uh, it kind of comes about uh, kind of during the uh, towards the end of the 1970s, the, the beginning of the 1980s. Um, and the removal of restrictions on uh, capital mobility um, essentially has, well, it has a, a number of different effects. Um, one of the first and, and most significant effects, one of big, a big structural transformation of the global economy has been the emergence of what has been what economists have referred to as global imbalances. So the emergence of countries with large trade deficits, large current account deficits, and others with large trade surpluses. So you've got uh, China, Japan and Germany, all which have big trade surpluses, uh, and the US and the UK, which has have large trade deficits. And, and this is essentially what, what my report looks at, because the other the flip side of having a trade deficit is um, if your currency is relatively stable, which uh, the UK's has been over the well prior to 2007, then that implies that the capital that is leaving the UK via your trade deficit is flowing back in via the capital account. Uh, and these capital flows have really undergirded um, the international financial system over the last 40 years in a way that isn't hasn't really been properly accounted for by um, trade economists or by macroeconomists more broadly. And actually, a number of economists have said that those the emergence of those imbalances and those capital flows were central to um, the financial crisis. So my report basically looks at the relationship between uh, the financialization of the global economy, understood as the removal of restrictions on capital mobility, and the financialization of the UK's economy, understood as the deregulation of finance and associated um, increases in, in indebtedness, in uh, asset price inflation and um, various other impacts on, on other sectors. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of story that's told about that turn away from manufacturing towards finance, um, which argues that the British industry had proved to be inefficient and that it had to be propped up by the government uh, during the 1970s and that joining the EEC in order to, uh, to discipline British manufacturers by exposing them to continental competition had simply ended up in demonstrating how inferior British manufacturers actually were. Um, what do you make of that sort of classically conservative story about the British economy? Yeah, so I think that classically conservative story is complemented by um, a, a classic reading of this from, from the left, which is essentially that there was... Um, a kind of generalised crisis in the 1970s, which was experienced as a, a profit squeeze for capitalists in, in the global north, uh, driven partly by rising input costs, so partly driven by uh, unionisation of labour and increasing um, kind of strife between labour and capital, but partly driven by an increasing amount of competition with um, capitalists in the global south. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, that reading of uh, British manufacturing needs to be exposed to uh, greater competition from the rest of the world. Um, is complemented on the other side by the idea that that competition, which was increasing, um, served to create a profit squeeze and a structural crisis in um, the global north. But really, of course, the idea that comes out of that is that um, from the left, capitalists, um, capital, it's another phase of adaption of capital. So we move from a, an economy which is based on um production which creates jobs which uh, you know allows us to export to the rest of the world towards an economy 
whose primary method of accumulation is financial. Uh, so which rests on the extraction of capital from the rest of the world and the recycling of that into financial activities in the global north. Uh, and the kind of parallel conservative narrative is that um, we move from a we move naturally as a pr- kind of teleological progression of um, of uh, capitalist economy is to move from manufacturing towards a uh, service based economy. Um, but both of those narratives tend to overstate the distinction uh, between financial and industrial capital. So this is a kind of a classic um, Marxist distinction, the, the idea that there's a, a big divide between the manufacturers and various forms of industrial capital and financial capital. And that the financial capitalists, when they're in ascendancy, tend to extract from the industrial capitalists and that there's some sort of... Uh, cleavage there within um, within capital that could potentially be exploited to the benefit of, of the proletariat. Um, but what's interesting about this phase of financialization, and there have been previous phases of financialization, um, I, I, Giovanni Arrighi has a, a, an interesting book at this, looking at financialization as a kind of period of transition between uh, different phases of imperialism. Um, and even you know, if you don't agree with that, there have definitely been different periods of, of hoped finance and, and financialization uh, throughout the history of capitalism. But what differentiates this period of financialization is um, the real proximity between financial and industrial capitals, the extent to which you can even um, separate the two. And the way in which this is experienced is as the financialization of uh, the different sectors of the economy, so of non-financial corporations, of households, and of governments, and probably the most uh, the most important part of this when we're looking at uh, you know the alleged divide between industrial and financial capital is the financialization of the non-financial corporation, um, and the the neoclassical narrative on this is that um, you reach a period uh, in the 1970s and 80s in which ownership of a company becomes separate to management of a company. And in order to ensure that the managers of the company run it in the interests of the owners, you get this idea, the ideology of the maximization of shareholder value. And that narrative on, on the right is based on the idea that it's more efficient, uh, that profitability increases um, and that, you know, um, the use of resources is is more effective under this idea of the maximization of shareholder value. Basically, the responsibility of the manager is to make sure that the share price is as high as possible and rising. Um, and the the narrative from a um, from a kind of Marxist political economy perspective is that this represents a fusion of the interests of industrial and financial capital because the managers who are running the organization um, are increasingly you know, because they're often being paid in, in stock options and, um, you know, various other incentives that require them to maximise shareholder value, their interests are increasingly aligned with those of financial capital. So everyone wants a high share price, everyone wants lots of dividends payments, everyone wants lots of capital gains. Um, and this has a number of different implications that have been studied uh, extensively by, particularly by post-Keynesian economists. So you have an increase in kind of short-termism on the part of companies. Um, you get... For example, the, the one of the most the starkest uh, uh, trends which happens after this uh, MSV um, ideology becomes hegemonic is the kind of debt leveraged buyout. So the idea that you know corporate raiders can uh, come in, take over a company, extract all, all the cash, and force them to pay out huge amounts of money to their shareholders rather than investing 
productively. And that's a kind of fairly extreme example. But um, over the course of uh, the last 40 years, you have seen a trend whereby corporations, even if they aren't uh, mainly engaged in financial activity have become much more focused on maintaining their share price, uh, ensuring that they're paying out high dividends and um, generally, you know, maximizing shareholder value rather than, say, thinking more towards the future and about what they might need to invest in in order to secure their profitability over the next several decades. Um, so, yeah, that kind of division between financial and industrial capital tends to break down when you look at the actual trajectory of financialization uh, as as it happened between um, the kind of uh, early 1980s and 2007. The trend since then has been slightly different, which is partly what my report looks at. Yeah, I mean, that sort of makes me think of, um, of, of certain uh, conventional Keynesian economists um, who seem to be a bit perplexed that there isn't a greater degree of, of conflict between manufacturing and finance. But as you're saying, that division is, is much less real than it's often perceived to be. Um, not only is there, as you described, that that focus on the, the bottom line over, over all other considerations, um, but also manufacturing corporations themselves being engaged in, in selling financial products, um, car makers uh, engaged in selling insurance and so on and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um this is the idea that of the well, as I said, the kind of financialization of of the non financial corporation. So it's not only that these companies are are run increasingly in the interests of shareholders, which are generally um, and increasingly other financial institutions or financial intermediaries like hedge funds or pension funds or even kind of banks. Um, it's also that those companies are now increasingly engaged in in financial activities themselves, and perhaps the kind of the the most deeply financialized um, corporations are the tech companies because they sit on these huge cash piles. Um, they are run, you know, pretty much even even in the, the context of, of uh, the, the big tech companies that allegedly aren't making as, as much profit as they could be. The reason they're doing that is to stake out a monopoly position in order to effectively secure uh, monopoly rents for the foreseeable future. And what they are doing is sitting on huge uh, cash reserves and using and investing those cash reserves in a way that a bank might. So, for example, um, say Google has tens of billions of pounds literally in cash that it is not investing productively in its own, the expansion of its own um capacities it may buy the bonds of another corporation so essentially lend to another corporation as a bank might um so again since the financial crisis the the financialization of the non-financial corporation has taken quite an interesting turn which relates to uh the fact that corporations many corporations not just the big tech monopolies although they're extreme example are hoarding large amounts of capital and lending those out uh, to various different sectors of the economy I think we'll come back to the issue of productive investment, which obviously you make some recommendations about in the report. But another thing that you look at is the current account deficit. Um, so for the last five years or more, I feel like I've been sort of uh, been reading the same article by Larry Elliott in The Guardian, in which he argues that the, the current account deficit is unsustainable and that something has to be done about it. Um, why do you think that a reckoning on this issue really is due? And, and could you also maybe briefly explain what the current account deficit is? So essentially, when a country runs a current account deficit, then it is selling more to the rest of the world than it is buying from it. Uh, and when that happens, when your uh, imports are greater than your exports, then capital is leaving the country because essentially 
you when a um, UK consumer has to buy a widget from China, uh, it has to sell um, UK sterling to buy Chinese RMB, um, which puts downward pressure on the currency because uh, that sterling is flowing out of the UK. So the traditional macroeconomic theory is that um, current accounts and um, exchange rates should adjust with one another. So if you're running a persistent current account deficit, then your sterling, your currency should depreciate, sorry. Um, and that will in turn render your exports more competitive because the price of your currency uh, determines the price of your goods on global markets. What's been interesting about, as I kind of alluded to in the first answer, it, about the um, period after the 1980s and up to 2007 was the emergence of these huge persistent um, imbalances between countries running huge current account surpluses and those running large current account deficits. Um, and this kind of wasn't really comprehensible according to traditional macroeconomic theory. Um, the idea was that, you know, any country running a current account deficit for an extended period of time should experience a devaluation, which should then correct for um, the existence of the deficit. Uh, so what my report looks at is how we managed to sustain a combination of a, a big current account deficit with a strong currency. And essentially what was happening was that the capital that was flowing out of the UK via the current account deficit was flowing back into the country via the financial account, which measures capital flows. Um, and the essentially what was going on was that the capital that fl flowed out of the UK couldn't really find a home anywhere else in the global economy. And this was the same story as with the US. Uh, you couldn't, it, a lot of it couldn't get into China um, because of the monetary policy that was being pursued by China at the time. It couldn't go to a number of other countries in Southeast Asia that were operating currency pegs against the dollar. Um, and whilst much of it would have gone into Germany, um, the existence of the euro made sure that um, the capital inflows kind of weren't particularly attracted into Germany as much as they might have been otherwise. So all this surplus ca uh, capital was kind of flowing around the, the global economy. And at the same time as that was happening, uh, the US and the UK deregulated their financial sectors, which meant that banks in the US and the UK were able to suddenly lend huge amounts more money, both to businesses and primarily to consumers. And what this catalyzed was um, obviously a massive increase in borrowing, particularly to UK consumers, but particularly to buy housing. Um, and as housing, uh, as mortgage lending increased, house prices rose because you essentially had more money um, being lent to consumers to buy housing without a commensurate increase in supply. So you had more money chasing the same amount of stuff, which obviously, as with normal inflation, drives uh, increase in prices. So uh, this house price inflation, in turn, created this wealth effect for consumers. So if your house gets more valuable, you feel like you're wealthier because in many ways you are. And that then um, creates a big increase in consumer lending. So non-mortgage lending, unsecured lending, things like credit card lending or even um, secured lending, but not for mortgages. So, for example, equity withdrawals. Uh, and this increase in consumption, which is obviously what drives uh, both the economies of the US and the UK from the 1980s onwards, um, also leads to increases in imports. And so you get this increase in the current account deficit from that side. Uh, what should have happened then, obviously, was that um, the exchange rate should go down. But because there was all this surplus capital flowing around the rest of the world that didn't really have a home, it saw the high returns that were being generated by banks in the UK and the US from lending to UK and US consumers against increasing real estate prices. 
And so it flowed into UK and US banks. And this surplus capital going into banks uh, increased the amount that banks are able to lend for a longer period of time. And obviously, it, it becomes more complicated when the banks start creating more different instruments to sell both to international investors and to uh, investors in the UK and the US. So these are the, the securitized um, instruments that, that kind of were a big part of the financial crisis. So the, the collateralized debt obligations and the asset-backed securities, uh, which are all um, financial instruments created on, on the basis of, uh, of mortgage debt given to consumers. And so the selling of, of those assets, as well as um, just inflows into UK banks, is what kept sterling high for most of that period. At the same time, high sterling and a large current account deficit meant that uh, exporters who should have been experiencing at the time a, a devaluation, which would have made their exports more competitive, uh, were kind of unable to sell their goods really on world markets unless there were areas in which the UK had a particular specialism, which is basically pharmaceuticals and weapons. So most other exporters uh, found the, um, the the price of sterling made their goods completely uncompetitive. And of course, the price of sterling was down to um, the finance sector, which is where the kind of narrative of the report comes in, the idea that uh, our over-dependence on, on finance has damaged our manufacturing sector and our, our exporters uh, and that um, it's necessary to kind of engineer a, a managed move towards a, a less overvalued currency in order to boost the UK's exporters. So regarding that move, um, you make a number of policy suggestions, uh, including the introduction of, of capital controls, a financial transactions tax, um, giving the Bank of England a new remit to control house price inflation. Uh, could you briefly outline the various measures that you propose and, and how they sort of intersect with each other and, and the effects that you think they would, uh, they would have? Yeah, so um, the main recommendation, as, as you mentioned, is uh, that the, the Financial uh, Policy Committee of the Bank of England should have a house price inflation target. Um, and this is not only linked to um, the desire to limit capital inflows into the UK. It's also based on a desire to uh, increase financial stability. Because of course, you know, that model that I described in the last question was integral to um, the financial crisis of 2007. Because unrestricted lending, uh, which was able to go on for an extended period of for a, a longer than it otherwise might have due to capital inflows from the rest of the world, um, creates uh, a spiral uh, of asset price inflation whereby investors see the prices of assets increase um, and they then invest on those invest in those assets on that basis, um, which then drives those asset prices up more. Those investors may then borrow to invest in those assets. Uh, and this drives a kind of self-reinforcing cycle, uh, uh, what Hyman Minsky described as um, the typical financial cycle based on uh, the different logics that govern asset prices compared to prices in the inverted commas real economy. Um, and so the asset price inflation target is meant to limit lending, particularly house price house lend, uh, mortgage lending, sorry, which is uh, the, the most significant asset for, uh, for most people in the economy and which was obviously integral to the crisis of 2007, uh, both in order to promote financial stability 
to prevent those cycles of asset price inflation and also to uh, reverse basically the financialization because financialization is so inherently linked to uh, increased lending to consumers for mortgages uh, and the securitization of that debt. The idea is that breaking that cycle of debt driven asset price inflation um, will limit financialization and therefore help to um, kind of re-engineer a, a more competitive currency and also a more balanced economy. Um, and the, the following recommendations can kind of be seen as, um, as complements to, to that aim. Um, and so the other uh, recommendations are that we need to reform the taxation of banks. And again, this is part of the uh, attempt to definancialize the economy. Um, and uh, basically the idea is that we need to move away from taxing bank profits towards taxing uh, worldwide balance sheets, um, which disproportionately affects uh, large international banks that are more likely to um, uh, be, a, well, to expose themselves to systemic risk that um, can create financial instability. Uh, the kind of capital controls uh, recommendation is that we should have a, a form of qualitative capital control. So rather than saying you're allowed to take X amount out of the UK, um, we advocate a tax on capital inflows and outflows uh, to and from the UK. Um, and this would be a financial transaction tax on currency transactions. And the idea is that you'd have a, a normal low level um, of, of the tax, which would be applied to every single currency transaction. And that it, on, in, the, um, in the event of a kind of large inflow or outflow, you'd be able to... Um, invoke a kind of higher tier of anything up to kind of 90%. So that would be the idea of if there was a big crisis and, you know, bankers decided, oh, I want to take a million pounds out of the UK economy and stash it in Panama. Um, the idea would be that we would then say, fine, you can do that, but we'll charge you 90%. So you'll be taxed 900,000 pounds of that. Um, and that's meant to work as a, a form of qualitative capital control. Um, and then the other recommendations are to... Um, uh, reverse the UK's role as a hub for money laundering and as a conduit to uh, the UK's network of secrecy jurisdictions, which also plays a role in, in promoting our competitiveness as a, a financial hub. And finally, to use the, re uh, the uh, revenues from all of that to promote an industrial strategy that will support the UK's exporters. Um, because, of course, um, you know, we the idea that uh, the UK has some sort of comparative advantage, which means that... Um, the state doesn't really need to intervene to support any one particular industry has been uh, completely disproven by most historical evidence. You know, most of the countries that have successful manufacturing bases have had a huge amount of state support going into those industries, particularly in the early stages. And so the idea would be that the revenues from reducing um, the influence of the finance sector or controlling the finance sector would go into promoting exporters. And hopefully over a kind of period of several decades, this would uh, slowly rebalance the UK's economy uh, without, um, and also mitigate the potential impact of another huge financial crisis. I was recently listening to a talk on, on housing and, and one of the speakers was Jeremy Gilbert of the, the University of East London, uh, who's also been on, on the show before. Um, he was making the point that if a, if a Labour government were to take office and to introduce policies similar to the ones that, that you're advocating, uh, that the effect of house prices no longer continuing to rise would have uh, an impact on those constituencies that, that benefit from continually rising house prices before the positive impact of a new industrial strategy could be felt. So is there a danger that the proposals you make, whilst they might be sensible in the abstract, they could very quickly face extremely fierce resistance from the constituencies that benefit from current arrangements? Yeah, so the 
the things that aren't really mentioned in my report, which is, is basically a kind of economic policy report, is uh, the political economy of financialization. Um, but actually, I think, you know, you, well, you, you definitely can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Um, and there is a there's a, a political economic perspective as to why this might work and why it might work now. And so the idea is that um, financialization was supported by a, a particular type of political economy, a kind of ingenious uh, bargain between financial elites and the middle classes, which was uh, affected through the provision of uh, home ownership to uh, large parts of, of the population uh, alongside um, the privatization of pension funds, which gave uh, a large section of the electorate, if not a majority of the population, an interest in uh, ever-increasing asset price inflation. And this bargain is the basis of the Thatcherite settlement and it's the basis of the new Labour compromise uh, in the 90s. And so that bargain is, is premised upon the idea of the expansion of um, ownership of capital to create kind of classes of mini capitalists combined with the ever increasing value of that capital. And of course, both of those things entail contradictions. Uh, so on the, like, together they entail a contradiction because as you expand capital ownership um, and combine that with, with asset price inflation, uh, that very ownership of capital becomes uh, increasingly difficult to attain for the rest of the population. And we saw that obviously with the housing crisis um, and we're seeing you know, the impacts of that today. But there's also an internal economic contradiction with the idea of continuous asset price inflation, which is what I was talking about when I talked about Minsky, the idea that um, asset price inflation premised upon debt and particularly speculation driven by debt uh, creates dynamics that tend towards financial instability um, and, and recurrent crises. And so 2007 was the kind of Minsky moment that in, in which those contradictions uh, manifested themselves. What's been interesting about what's happened since the financial crisis is that there's not really been any attempt to move towards a different model and think about uh, the, the way in which those contradictions have um, affected both the economy and political economy. Um, so, you know, rather than actually analysing the way in which this kind of debt driven consumption fuel growth model has, has hurt the economy, we've instead decided to uh, adopt what well, the Bank of England has adopted, the, the quantitative easing policy, which is um, through a kind of portfolio rebalancing effect inflated equity prices mainly, but also asset prices across the board, because obviously they're all related. And so we've tried um, to get back to a model premised upon asset price inflation. Um, of course, that hasn't really worked, partly because UK consumers are still so indebted uh, that um, the extension of ever greater amounts of debt has essentially reached a ceiling. Um, the debt wasn't written off during the financial crisis, but equally it can't be expanded exponentially. Um, and so we're in this kind of zombie economy in which um, people haven't defaulted, but equally they're not able to, to take on uh, more debt. And that's been combined with... Um, the issue around that, basically the housing crisis, which is the, uh, accompanied by um, uh, the problems associated with the extension of, um, uh, with continuous asset price inflation, is the problem of the extension of home ownership in the context of a financialized economy, which is uh, low growth, low wage, and in which the vast majority of people cannot now and do not think that they will ever be able to afford to, to buy their own home. And that really undermines, alongside the kind of the crisis of um, 
in financial markets that affected a lot of people's pensions and that is, is creating a kind of looming pensions crisis. That has really undermined uh, the Thatcherite bargain, which was obviously this idea of property owning democracy and pension fund capitalism. And has created a kind of structural crisis, not only in the economy that we've seen in the stagnation of the UK economy since 2007, but also in political economy. And you see this in the emergence of uh, of populist movements on the right but also Corbynism you know what was the biggest predictor of whether or not someone would vote Labour in 2017 it was whether or not they owned a house there's a huge swathe of the population now and a big swathe of the electorate that doesn't think that they'll ever be able to afford to own a house so this idea of um, creating a kind of a mini capitalist class that would support financialization is is coming up against its own inherent contradictions at the moment and I think that provides us with um, a real moment of opportunity uh, to think about um, moving beyond an individualistic, consumption-based uh, model of growth that is not only inherently unappealing uh, to most people, it's also coming up against um, the limits imposed by uh, the environment, um, as well as obviously its own kind of internal issues, um, in order to move towards an economy in which the state plays a much greater role in directing investment, uh, in which unions are much stronger, wages are much higher, essentially in which capital is, is subjugated to the collective interests of labour. Um, and I do think that this particular moment is a moment of crisis, an extended moment of crisis, in which either capital will adapt and we will move towards a new model, which will be premised upon ever-increasing levels of inequality and, um, and essentially repression of one form or another, or we will use this moment to move towards uh, essentially a socialist model. Um, and I think, you know, both of those potentialities are are inherent in the moment in which we find ourselves. But I think that we can um, adopt policies which um, allow us to move towards the latter rather than the former. Regarding the question of, uh, of the sort of developing radicalisation of, of sectors of the population, you mentioned Leo Panitch and Sam Gindan earlier. And one of the interesting points I've heard Leo Panitch make is that when explaining the ongoing collapse of the political hegemony of uh, neoliberalism, one thing he points to is the declining implication of, of ordinary people with finance. Um, so in the case of North America, he points out that um, after the financial crisis, you really have a shakeout of people at the bottom end of the of the market, people being foreclosed on their homes or not able to get credit and so on. And that results in the decline of people, as you say, conceiving of themselves as, as sort of mini capitalists. And, and, and that uh, strategy for maintaining hegemony no longer pertains. That experience of a contradictory class location shifts away in some ways towards a more traditionally proletarian way of, of viewing oneself. Um, I just wonder if, if you would say that that's also the story in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what I was alluding to when I talked about the the um, decline of pension fund capitalism mm. and, and property owning democracy as, as um, a way in which you would describe UK political economy, um, both because of the housing crisis, uh, because of what we're now seeing, which is um, a stalling in, in growth of house prices, and also because of the, um, the kind of less commented upon, but equally, if not more severe, crisis of the privatisation of people's pension funds, which, you know, most people who have private pension funds aren't going to be able to have the kind of um, standard of living that they saved for, uh, and and may actually have to work for for much longer than they than they think that they will. Of course, the other option, uh, which would prevent those those crises from um, materialising, is 
constant asset price inflation, which doesn't actually prevent those prices from materializing it, it pushes it down the line. So if we move back to a model of constant increases in equity prices to preserve the values of people's pensions and constant increases in house prices to preserve people's wealth, you again will see the emergence of 2007 2.0. That's unlikely to happen because of the the way in which uh, most of the global north is now saturated with unpayable debt. And unpayable debt was obviously the driver of, of those um, that asset price inflation to begin with. But, you know, that is the other potential model and that has a whole set of um, other issues associated with it, not least the environmental imperative, uh, which, you know, if we continue at current rates of consumption, will destroy the planet within the next couple of decades. Um, but what's interesting as well is the way in which, you know, you can't just look at this model. This model is not sustainable in and of itself within the UK. It's premised upon exploitation of and extraction from the rest of the world. And that's really what my report is about. It looks at um, the kind of the modern manifestation of US imperialism, but also the real close um, implication of UK capitalism driven by the City of London in that model uh, and you know the financialization of the UK economy in which the City of London is is far bigger uh, in terms of its its dominance of the rest of the economy in the UK than it is in, in many other places that's allowed the UK to benefit from uh, capital flight from the global south which has largely gone into the U- the US via the exorbitant privilege of their having the world currency which is the dollar but it's also gone into the UK to sustain um consumer lending and, and, you know, the securitization of that lending and all those things I was talking about earlier. Um, And again, that is increasingly unsustainable, Uh, not only because so much of that capital has already been extracted from places where um, the kind of organic um, ability of capital to reproduce itself is not, um, you know, particularly advanced, but also because places where, you know, that are becoming more advanced on kind of the the trajectory of capitalism places such as China are presenting a, a you know an affront to that model they are they haven't you know China has not opened up its economy to um it has not liberalized its capital account um and that represents and has represented for a long time a, a real existential threat to um the model of, of debt-driven consumption that the UK and the US have, have chosen to pursue for really the last 40 years. And you started to see this actually in the not only the slowing down of capital mobility, which has happened since 2007, but in the closing of those huge imbalances that I mentioned earlier. So the Chinese uh, current account deficit is slowly starting to close. Um, and when that starts to happen, you we will get to a point where the UK and the US will no longer be able to borrow cheaply from the rest of the world. Um, and that will represent a, a real, you know, a, a potential structural, another, mm. <laughs> another structural crisis. Mm. Um, and you started to see this in the UK, in, in the, what's the changing nature of capital flows into the UK since the crisis. So because banks have had to consolidate, uh, they've had to kind of um, reduce their leverage and, and you know, essentially comply with the regulation that's been implemented since 2007. Capital flows into UK banks have reversed and actually banks in the UK are now um, net depositors to the rest of the world. What's been really interesting is that um, the capital flows that have made up for that have been foreign direct investment. Now, foreign direct investment has all these positive overtones of, you know, we want to attract investment in the UK economy. But essentially what it means is increased foreign ownership over UK companies. And 2016 was a record year it throughout the whole of, you know, since records began, as it were, 
uh, for inward merger and acquisition, for the value of inward mergers and acquisitions into the UK, which essentially means British companies are being taken over by foreign companies. And that means that all the, the, the vast, a large proportion of the future revenues of those companies will no longer be going to UK capitalists, but to capitalists in the rest of the world. Um, and so the reversal of that model in which the UK and the US have been able to constantly extract uh, from the rest of the world via capital inflows and from the future via debt is reaching, it, it, its, its contradictions are showing on so many levels. Uh, it clearly looks like it is no longer sustainable. And the question really for us is whether or not we're able to move towards a, a different economic model, which is... Um, more based on um, the production and maintenance of demand through the the state, which is um, democratized and responsive to the population, uh, and which uh, in which capital is embedded in communities, or whether or not we carry on with the current model, kind of you know fumbling around in the dark until we eventually fall off the cliff, which is obviously coming. Yeah. So, um, so regarding the the end goal, so uh, we're a couple of weeks after um, Ash Sarkar's "I'm literally a communist" moment on uh, on Good Morning Britain that we all uh, enjoyed so much. Um, are you literally a communist, Grace? <laughs> oh, I've um, I've had this conversation with a couple of different people. I mean, so there's obviously the view that um, uh, that Lenin's view that the, the uh, socialism is the means through which you achieve communism and so on that sense i think i probably am but i wouldn't necessarily call myself a communist because i would always attach uh, a kind of large amount of importance to the intervening period during which time you have to gain control over the state in order to transform political economy in order to kind of basically uh, subject the capitalist classes in the uk to um democratic control by the proletariat. So, I mean, yes, but also I don't really subscribe to the more like teleological aspects of historical materialism that would be like, oh, everything's just gonna come to a crisis. And obviously this is a ridiculously simplistic reading of Marx, but you know, in which you get a crisis in the state with us mm. away naturally. I'd, I'd rather call myself a socialist. Well, I'm not sure that's all going to fit on a T-shirt, sure but, it, but it's, 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 a, it's a good answer nonetheless. <laughs> it's a good answer um, <laughs> I don't think it will, you're right. I mean, a co- communist is more catchy and it sounds cooler. <laughs> You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you really like the show, please do consider donating to the Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.